Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Context is key. I think I've always said that in many ways and in different forms, I've encouraged you as a church to look for the context, to, to ground yourself, to figure out where you are in order to make sense of what you're seeing and hearing around you. This morning is an example of that for us. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Imagine you find yourself in a room filled with other people. I mean, it's chock-a-block filled. And into that room staggers, stumbles, the saddest looking man. A man who is wearing clothes that are so ill-fitting it's almost comedic. A man who is 
face is, is covered in, in makeup in a garish sense. Strangest thing of all about this man is that he's pretending he can't speak. He can speak, but he's making out as if he can't speak. How strange, how weird a scenario and situation would that be? It would be strange, wouldn't it? Unless you knew you were in the circus. Unless you knew you were in the circus, you'd be expecting then, of course, for a clown to come in and to look exactly like that and to act exactly like that. Knowing where you are, knowing the context, helps you to understand the things that you see and the things that you hear. And that's no less true than when we come to a passage like the passage we're in today. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. How strange, how weird. It is strange and it is weird. Even when we get the context, I think for many of us, it will still seem strange and weird. But let's, let's think about the context. The context of 1 Peter is a letter in total. The context of this chapter in the flow of the letter and, and the context of the people who are being spoken to specifically in their cultural setting. First of all, the context of the letter. We've already said it, week one, week two, last couple of weeks. Um, but 1 Peter is a letter written by one of Jesus's earliest followers, someone who had seen and heard the things that Jesus did and taught, Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends. It's a letter that he's writing to the early church, to the church maybe in the first couple of decades after Jesus's death, a church that finds itself far flung across the Roman Empire, to people who have decided to put their trust and their hope in Jesus above and beyond all other things and find themselves scattered, isolated, lonely, and potentially, potentially marginalized in the situations that they find themselves in. He's writing a letter to those people and he wants to encourage them. He wants them to see how they can have hope in spite of the circumstances that they find themselves in. That's the context of the letter. The context of the chapter does begin, likewise wives, or in the same way wives, it, it's carrying on the flow of thought, the argument that's begun in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, what Peter is trying to do is encourage Christians in their diverse relationships, in the, the various um, links and things that they have, to live in such a way that the name of Christ is honoured. To live in such a way that... They declare the praises of the one who has called them out of darkness and into the glorious light. You know, he said in verse 12 specifically, live such good lives, all of you, that others might see your good deeds and glorify God. In chapter 2, verse 13, he said specifically to the entire church, Submit yourselves to the authorities, to emperors, good or bad, to governors who've been put there by God, so that you might silence their senseless, ignorant chatter, that you might stop them talking nonsense and give them a moment to pause and to consider the way, the truth and the life. Then he's turned his focus to two particular groups. Last week we looked at it briefly, slaves, and this week, wives. And it begs the question, why single out slaves and wives? Well, that's where the context culturally needs to come in. Because if Christians in general found themselves isolated, alone, potentially marginalised and downtrodden, here are two groups in that culture who seriously 
would have found themselves in that situation. We don't need much convincing that being a slave is a bad thing, that being a slave puts you in a difficult situation. We say the word and it conjures up images for us of oppression, of liberties removed, of freedom removed, of abuse. You know, that was no less the case in Roman culture. The advice at the time was if if a slave got sick, don't waste your money on medicine, take them out to the field, kill them, go to the market, buy a new slave, start again. They really were all alone. They really were marginalised and up against it in deep and dark situations. But what about wives? Well, again, in that culture, wives were as good as slaves. Wives were very often only wives through arranged marriages. Part of a, a, a tag on at the end of a larger business transaction where, where property or goods were being exchanged. Routinely, they were neglected. Often they were abused. They were subjected to infidelity so that the, the husband could socially boast about it. You know, of all the people who made up the church, and a lot of wives and slaves did make up the church because the light, the gloriousness of the gospel shone even brighter in their dark situation. Of all the people in the church, when Peter is writing, here are people who need his encouragement. Here are people who need him to draw near to them and to offer them hope that their lives can make a difference even in these dark and desperate situations. So what does he say? The context being given that this is a letter written to encourage those who are up against it. That he's carrying on this flow of thought showing us how we live and how we relate to others can have this glorious effect of bringing others into a relationship with God. Realising the context that in particular there are these groups, slaves and wives, women, who really are facing difficulties. What does he write? He says this, submit yourselves to your husbands, even if they disobey the word, even if they've heard the truth about Jesus and they've rejected it and they've gone completely and utterly the other way. Submit yourselves so that they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure and reverent lives. See, we have a specific instruction here to a certain group of people in a particular situation, but it's just carrying on this general truth that he's been developing already. The general truth that how we live has the potential to draw people into Jesus and sadly has the power to push them away. That we can either live such winsome lives that other people want the gospel to be true, or we can live like such jerks, like such tall rags, that people would never believe what the things that we had to say about Jesus. I love Peter's poetry, by the way. He says that even these husbands who disobey the word, reject the word, can be won over without a word. That they've heard it all before. They've heard Paul standing up in the Areopagus with his rhetoric, with his arguments, with his philosophy, with his declaration of the truth. And they've turned their back on that. And Peter says, you know what? There's potential though. Just through the witness, just through the testimony, just through the words that our lives speak to have them turned around and to come to trust in Jesus. I think it's a sad truth though 
that the church in general over the last centuries, and perhaps even the church specifically here in Amonford, we've believed the exact opposite to be true. We've we've taken and, and we've been fed and we've believed in the lie that words are what are most important. That if someone can articulate the truth, that if someone can win an argument, if someone's speech is impressive, they're the ones that we lift up. They're the ones that we need to honour. They're the ones that we need to emulate. Regardless of their conduct, regardless of their character, if someone can speak the truth, that's what really matters. And Peter says, no. Because anyone can learn a script. Anyone can learn those arguments and very often people will hear them and they'll still reject the truth. Peter says what has real power, what really demonstrates the, the, the truth, the validity of the hope that we claim to have is how we live our lives. Of how we suffer, of how we submit, of how we are willing to humble ourselves, to be humiliated for his sake. Now this is not to say that Peter is saying, do you know what, abuse is fine and I hope it carries on. Because he's not advocating for any system of government when he says submit to the emperors. He's not advocating for the perpetuation of slavery when he says slaves obey your masters. He's not saying, you know, women who are in these horrible relationships, that's fine as long as they behave themselves. He's not saying that at all. The thrust of all the scriptures is that we should be advocates for those who are oppressed. That wherever we see abuse and injustice, we should be the voice for the voiceless and to be seeking change. So he's not saying that those things should carry on. That couldn't be further from the truth. But he's speaking to people in those situations. He's saying, take courage, take hope. Eh? That you've got an emperor who's above that emperor. You've got a master who's above your master. You've got a husband who's so much better than your husband. But B, change can come. And it's not down to the clever words that you are, the arguments that you can devise. But it's down to how you live your life. Of how you put your hope in God. And that's how he sums up these women who apparently are supposed to submit to their husbands, their husbands who have rejected the truth and aren't treating them particularly well. He says, do you know what? Your hope shouldn't come from the way that you dress or the words that you use. Your hope should come from God. Verse five, these holy women in the past have put their hope in God. And they're like Sarah, he says, Sarah and Abraham. You might know the story of Sarah and Abraham. If you don't, it's found in Genesis. You can go and check it out. They are two really elderly folk who have been promised by God that they're going to have a son. And through that son, their family is going to multiply and it's going to be as numerous and as glorious as this, the stars in the sky. And there's that temptation in Sarah to, to laugh at it. She does laugh at it. To doubt what God has said. To be fearful that his promises won't come true and this future that they have envisaged will never be materialised. But in one particular story, the only time it's recorded that she calls Abraham Lord, which is what Peter is referring to here, she accepts. She trusts in the promises of God. She puts her hope not in herself or her age or her ability, but in him. 
And so Peter is writing and he's encouraging wives and slaves and husbands and anyone who is under some authority and anyone who has a neighbour who doesn't agree with them on the status and the authority of Christ. He's saying, put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in the one who is above all those things. Take the risk that it might cost you and live in such a way that they want the gospel to be true. In verse 8, he goes on and he, and he sort of sums it all up. He says, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic folk, filled with love, be compassionate, be humble. Don't be those who repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because you were called to do this so that you would inherit a blessing. He says, well, whatever station, whatever lot you find yourselves in life, strive to live this way with selflessness, with service, with humility. And Peter, I think, can say this especially because he's seen it lived out in Jesus. He's seen the one who has all power and authority and might. Set that aside for the sake of enriching those around him. You know, I'm sure, the story of Jesus getting down on his knees and washing his disciples' feet. When he got down on his knees and he was about to wash his disciples' feet, Peter couldn't imagine anything worse. He said, like, how, how dare this be a thing? You are my Lord. There's no way you can wash my feet. In the end, Jesus persuades him and convince him to do this but there's a there's a detail in that story that we often skip over John chapter 13 um, verse 3 it says this because Jesus knew that the father had handed all things over to him and because Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God because he had that sense of security because he had that sense of what he had being so so strong and unshakable because of that. It says this, verse 4, Jesus got up from the meal, removed his clothes, took a towel, tied it round himself, poured water into wash basins, and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he'd wrapped round himself. Because Jesus knew who he was in the Father, because he knew what he had that could not be taken away, he was willing to give it away. And that's what Peter is writing. He says, know who you are in Christ. Know that you are this holy, chosen, set-apart people. Know that you are stones scattered that are going to be built up into a temple. Know that you are a royal priesthood. And that can never be taken away from you in Jesus. And because you know that, give it up. Give it up. Lay it aside. Don't count it as something to be grasped for your own advantage, but use what you have, your strength. This is what he says particularly to husband. To serve and to love and to care for those who don't know. Doing that, you may persuade some people to come and like you, put your trust in Christ. But he's honest. He's honest that living as disciples in that way where we don't count ourselves first, we don't count our rights 
or our own honour as something to be um, fought for and argued over, that we aren't to persuade people to our way of thinking with aggressive words, with clever words, with, with arguments and rhetoric. He does say, you know, living lives like this of humility, of service, of love and compassion towards the people who are around us, the people who are above us. He's very open and honest. He said, it may be, it may be a costly thing to do. It'll take courage. Probably not as costly as we often imagine. It says verse 13, who is going to harm you for doing good? Who's going to do harm you for doing good? But even then, he says, verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. There's this amazing letter that was written a century after Peter's letter. And it's not from an apostle. It's not from a follower of Jesus encouraging the church. It's written from someone outside of the church who's just observing the lives of those who have listened and responded to Peter's letter. See how amazing this is. This is what he writes. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by a specific country or a language or a custom. From nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect. They don't have their own place. They don't have their own language. Nor do they practice an eccentric way of life, something that is completely and utterly different and foreign to the rest of us. This teaching of theirs has not been discovered by thought and reflection of um, ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine as some do. They're not just people who have got these wonderful ideas that have come upon them from some mystic retreat. But while they live with both Greek and barbarians in their cities, as each one's lot was cast, they follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of their life. And at the same time, they demonstrate a remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. So even though they live like locals, they're instantly recognisable as being different. They live in their own country, so they have no country. They participate in everything as citizens, and yet they endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign to them. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they don't kill their offspring like the rest of us do. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, yet indeed in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They go above and beyond the laws. They love everyone. And by everyone, they're persecuted. They are unknown, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they call that being brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and yet they abound in everything. They are dishonoured, and yet they are glorified in that dishonour. They are slandered, yet they claim to have vindication. 
They are cursed and yet they bless the eye, insulted and yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though they're being brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners. By the Greeks, they are persecuted yet. And yet, those who hate them, they're not even able to give a reason for that hostility. That's how somebody on the outside, a hundred years later, observed the church, observed Christians who had taken heed of Peter's encouragements and instructions to live such lives. Not to come with arguments and words and, and venom and, and, and spitting and, and, and wanting to tear everybody down and to have our ways. And you've got to believe what I say but with lives that are so winsome that they have the power to transform this hostile Roman Empire into Christendom, into a place where, where Christ is honoured, Christ is lifted up. Now, of course, Peter does go on to say that when we live in such a way, people ask us questions. People will want to know, why do you endure in such a way? Why do you suffer in such a way? Why are you willing to go do good even when it costs you? And he says we should be ready to have an answer in those occasions. An answer for the hope that we have. Now that isn't to be trained in some clever argument of why science doesn't disprove God. It's not to be trained in some clever argument as to why suffering doesn't prove God or, or how many religions show us that there is a true religion. Those are interesting things to discuss amongst ourselves. But no, he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have with gentleness and with respect. The, the same words that are used to describe wives submitting to their husbands. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Peter is encouraging us and Christians to have such a love for Jesus. Such a love for Jesus. And when someone says to you, why do you hope? Why do you live in the way that you live? Then we know. We have an answer. Think of it this way. If you're married, you tell someone you love your spouse. Or if you're a parent, you tell someone you love your child. And they ask, why? How do you answer that question? You certainly don't need me or another professional speaker to teach you how to answer that question. You can answer it because that love is there. You know the reasons you love that person. You know the reason why your hope is in Christ. Then, Peter says, when asked, then you give your answer. Then you give your apologetic, I think is the Greek word. He goes on and he speaks at the end of the chapter, the weird end to the weird beginning, about how Christ preached to those in the days of Noah and, and baptism and the removal of dirt and salvation. Here's what he's getting at. There will never be a time, there has never been a time when living faithfully, putting our hope in God hasn't been pushing against the green, hasn't made life difficult for those who want to honour God and to follow God. But the encouragement for us in those situations is Christ is Lord to such an extent that he always saves those who trust in him. In the days of Noah, 
there were only eight of them. Only eight of them who put their hope and their trust and their obedience in God. And yet he saved them through the ark. In our days, we may be scattered, we may be few in number, we may be hard-pressed in different ways, but you know, Christ has come through come through death in resurrection. More than that, he's ascended and he is now in that place of the highest authority, that all angels and all authorities and all powers are in submission to him. And so he brings us through likewise, through our suffering, through our hardship. We can put our hope in him. So we don't need to fight. We don't need to argue. We don't need to try and convince people's minds with our, with our words and our arguments. All we have to do is grow in our love for Jesus. To let that affect how we live our lives. And God will be glorified. We will declare the praises of him who has brought us out of the darkness and into his glorious light. Amen.